Welcome to Documentary First, an inside look at a first-time filmmaker's journey. I am your host, Josh Lindsay from the Movie Proposal Podcast. And with us is, as always, our first-time filmmaker, Christian Taylor. Hey there, Josh Lindsay. How are you? Christian Taylor. I'm good. How are you? Good. Before we start recording, uh, it sounded like you have a full house and uh, you have people interrupting you in your full house, as so as I. Yes. Yeah, I have Hunter moved on and um, Hunter moved on. Hunter moved on from his old life now into my life. He is uh, back home and living uh, here. And as you may or may not know, Hunter was the one that started this whole crazy story five years ago. And he now has graduated from college and is looking for a job. He was going to go back into the Army or the Navy. And all that got put on hold with COVID. So he has no job. And is living at home. So he may be joining us on a podcast next week. <laughs> all right. All right. And with us again, as always, is our trusty, dusty research extraordinaire, button pushing guy, Jason Rugg. Hey, Josh. How's it going, Jason? Good. I- I'm glad that you're back this week so I don't have to play you. <laughs> oh, good. That's right. Yeah. I forgot. I missed a week. I'm sure you did a fantastic job, but uh, glad to be back. And we've been, we've been on a roll having guests all the way from France are Flo and Jenny. Welcome, Flo and Jenny. Hi. Hello. So it is uh, early afternoon in uh, the United States, but it is late evening in France. Eight, yes. Yeah. Eight o'clock. Oui. Yeah. But as so know, today. You can see the sun behind them. And I do want to point out if nobody has ever been to France in the summer, Mm-hmm. It usually stays light until almost midnight, like yeah. or something. Mm-hmm. And really? it's very discombobulating because mm-hmm. you don't start getting hungry or ready for dinner. And all of a sudden you realize it's 10 or 11 at night. That's why they eat so late in the summer. True. It's true. Very interesting. All right. Well, I'm excited to uh, talk to you guys before we jump into that. Uh, Christian, what are some updates on The Girl Who Wore Freedom? Well, it's been a busy week in Girl Who Wore Freedom Land, um, and it filled with a lot of highs and lows as usual. Um, I'm going to start with the lows. Uh, last, I don't know if we had talked the last time, but did I tell you about the DeVille American Film Festival in Normandy? So, yeah. So this was one I was really hoping for. It's a big film festival in Normandy, but closer to Le Havre, uh, Le Havre and Caen. And it is a prestigious film festival. They usually only take 100 films, so I thought it was going to be very competitive. But we had the mayor of Saint-Marie-du-Mont write a letter on our behalf, as well as the mayor of Carenton, as well as um, the you know French general council from here in the Midwest. And so all of these people had written on our behalf, and I thought, well, maybe we would have a chance, uh, and we did not get in. And only 14 films did this time. And that has been a recurring theme. If film festivals are going to have a, a fest, they are cutting their acceptances dramatically. Uh, so that was really heartbreaking for me because I felt like that would have been the best place for us to have our world premiere that was going to be in September. And then we found out today that we did not get into the Chicago Film Festival, which was really heartbreaking and I actually got really mad about that one. Um, That was the first one that really made me mad because I am in this community. I've supported this community. Normally they have a Chicago focused, um, you know, 
part of the fest. But again, they usually have 150 films and this year they cut it down to 50. And so in that instance, film festivals want prestigious films that maybe you're going to get into the Oscars and they want star films that drive, you know, attendance. And so that was super disappointing. So uh, I'm sorry to hear that. Are they actually sh having a film festival where people will screen these films? We don't know. Um, Deville is in France. I mean, I think things are far better in France than they are here in the United States. So I think they're going to try it. Maybe because of that, they only have 14 theaters. <laughs> I don't know. Or the way that their schedule works, if they're having to spread everybody out, they can only show less films. I don't know. Um, they don't give you any information. As far as Chicago goes, they haven't decided what they're going to do, whether it's going to be in person or a hybrid or online. So there's just no way to know that. Sure. At this point. Well, the, well, the film marches on. What, what else is happening? What's on the so good, good, the good side? news Yeah, the good news is that we did get accepted into another film festival, uh, which I'm actually super excited about. So it was the International Sound and Film Music Festival. And it is in Paula, Croatia. And it is, you know, a really reputable film festival, particularly for scores. And we got nominated for the best original score for the documentary category. But then we won. What? I, we won. We won. I was so excited. I couldn't believe it. We won the best original score category. So... That was crazy because guess who our, we did have a, a tie there and our tie was with American Factory. And I don't know if you guys have heard of American Factory. It's on Netflix, but it was the first film produced by Barack and Michelle Obama. So it basically was a Hollywood film in a sense and had a lot of star power behind it. And it's, um, and the, the film that won the best original score for a feature was Parasite. Oh, wow. So, I mean, there are some incredible scores in those films. And they were submitted a long time ago, you know, because they were, they were just very small and nothing films when they first started, just like us. So they submitted to everything. So we were in competition with these big Hollywood films. And, uh, yeah, and we won. So... Do you have any idea how many people screen the films? Uh, I have no idea how many people screen them. I don't have any idea how many people entered. I really don't know, but I know. No, I mean like, I mean, it was a festival. So they had like, yeah. were there audiences that come? That it didn't happen. Kid? It didn't happen. Um, it was the same thing as the Indie Fan Film Fest where we won the best feature documentary. Oh, I don't think I announced that either yet. Whoa! <laughs> yeah, so we, uh, the Central States Indie Fan Film Fest is a younger fest, and we won for Best Feature Documentary there. Uh, I don't think I was supposed to announce those yet, but anyway, they're out. <laughs> um, and we will on social media eventually. So, so far, of the festivals that we've been accepted to, we've been accepted to three. Um, the Central States Indie Fan Film Fest, the International Sound and Music Festival, Film Music Festival, and and the Chagrin Documentary Festival in Chagrin Falls, Ohio. What? So we've been accepted into three film festivals, and we've won two awards so far, although the first two fests have not had any fests at all. 
they've just canceled them and given out the awards and the acceptances. And then the Chagrin Doc Fest is not until October. And we aren't supposed to release it because they haven't released it yet. But by the time this airs, they will be announcing it. So I feel safe saying that. So that's super exciting because it's a really well-known documentary film festival. And, uh, you know, we'll have to see what our chances are at that fest of getting best documentary feature. So that was all the exciting news. And then um, we have a, uh, a distribution offer on the table that we're considering. And so, this is a new one since two podcasts ago, yes? Well, it's not a new one. Uh, it is one we are still diving into. So that's right. I remember I gave you the sheet and you looked at it. It was 22 pages. I printed it off. So this is it. And I have been going through this with a tooth and comb. And I got to tell you, the filmmaking part of it, as hard as it was, was a piece of cake compared to figuring out the distribution deal. So anyway, uh, as far as things go with the film, I'm continuing to learn a lot. I think things are very positive and, you know, we're moving forward. Our bulk of the um, responses that we're supposed to be getting for our September film festivals are going to be coming in in the next two weeks. So probably a lot of rejections if I had to guess, uh, but maybe. Which hopefully. is completely normal. It is normal. It's so painful though. Hopefully there'll be at least one acceptance. In the yeah. Middle. You only need one good one. Yeah. True. So anyway, so that's the updates for the film. Awesome. Yeah. Well, let's it, shift gears and yeah. let's leave the United States. Let's go over to France. So Flo and Jenny, we're excited to have you. Uh, so first of all, how is, or how are things in France? Uh, it's, uh, it's like everywhere, I guess, you know, with the COVID-19, we have to be careful. You know, we, uh, things are different. Of course, we, you know, we're wearing masks when we're going outside, when we're going in different shops and we try to keep social distance, but, uh, things are different because, uh, the, the border with England, with America are closed. So we don't have any American tourists here, which is very strange to be in Normandy during the summer and have no American tourists talking, you know, um, but we have a lot of people from Netherlands, from Belgium, from Germany coming. So it's a different type of tourism, but, uh, for like guides like me, um, you know, uh, the activity is very low because Europeans don't really book a uh, tour, like guided tour. So, I mean, except that life is okay. We have a lot of time to do research. Uh, we have a lot of time to be together and going around. So I would say that it's okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I, I wanted to just to back up a little bit. Flo and Jenny are Flo and Jenny Plana, and they are here because Flo was in our film. He's one of the cornerstones of our film. Flo, um, when we met, uh, I've learned so much from Flo over the last three years um, that it it really is mind blowing. Uh, he's one of the most special people that I've ever met. Um, he is incredibly gifted uh, and very intelli intelligent, uh, but he's very well studied in history, uh, particularly World War II history and specifically uh, in the area of Normandy. 
And, uh, but the thing I love about Flo and one of the reasons I wanted to have he and Jenny on the podcast, I wanted everybody to get to know them both a little better. Uh, but I also, Flo has, um, I think his strongest suit are his people skills, honestly, and his incredible respect that he has for uh, people and in particular uh, older people. Uh, his elders, be they uh, veterans or uh, older French people in you know his own country, I think he learned a long time ago that there is much to learn and their stories are special. And I watched how he treated every single veteran that he interviewed with such respect uh, that it it just changed the way that I thought not only about veterans but about older people. And I really wanted him to come on and talk a little bit about that. Uh, but we're, before we get to that, I want to learn, a, you know, our audience to learn a little bit more about Flo. Um, and Flo, I'd love for you to talk about how you came into our project. Then okay. I'd like you to talk a little bit about what that experience was like for you. Then talk to us. We're going to move then into uh, your favorite stories. One of your favorite stories, World War II stories in Normandy how Jenny came into the picture. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and then, you, then you can talk to us a little bit about how to talk to veterans, the best way to talk to well, veterans. Well, so I'm going to try to uh, make it not too long because, you know, when I'm starting to talk, uh, it's hard for me to make a long story short. But uh, uh, so I, I already forget your first question. Okay, but <laughs> the first question is, how did you and I meet? How did you end up being a part of this film? <laughs> so, no, so as you know... Um, I went in 2014 to the United States. I just finished my college and master degree and I wanted to take a gap here, but um, I wanted to do something, uh, you know, I would say important for me, but as well for the society. I was like, I wanted to, to give a, a chance, you know, to, uh, to, to record and share the stories of World War II veterans that, that fought in Normandy and in Europe in general. And uh, so I, I went to the United States. I bought a camper on Craigslist and uh, very cheap for $2,500. And uh, I just went all around the U.S. Uh, meeting and recording uh, World War II veterans. Uh, I wanted to capture their story before, you know, they were uh, leaving us. And uh, back in 2000, I don't remember if it was, I think it's 2018, it's like we know each other for a long time, but I think it was 2018 that we, there, Michel Coupe, that told me about you, that you were doing a a, a project uh, about you know um, the, the the French perspective uh, and as well like uh, the American uh, and Allied invasion in Normandy uh, on June 6, 1944, and you wanted to know how the French were remembering uh, the people that uh, served and liberated their country. And you thought maybe that would be a good story to talk about this kid who was living in his camper, sleeping on Walmart parking lot, to actually meet, thanks, and record the veterans that fought for his freedom. So I think there were a link between uh, what you were looking for and, and what I was doing. So uh, I remember we've met uh, in Chicago. And you, you, you came with your crew. That was kind of impressive because I remember, you know, uh, all the team was a massive camera and stuff. And I, I just, like, I was 
And I was a student, so I didn't have a lot of money when I went to the US. So I bought a very cheap camera, very small in the tripod with a small mic. And your guys, you had an audio guy with like three mics, you know, with tripods and stuff. And you had like a curry that came with a massive camera, you know, and they were like, I, I was just impressed. And so we stopped, first of all, in Indiana. Uh, we visited John. And afterward, we went to um, Wisconsin to visit C.O. Bar. And I think that was a, both were very special meetings, but we, we had, a, I would say, more time with C.O., uh, which was great because he's a talker and he was able to talk about his story. But what was the most interesting for you and I is how he felt when he was in combat about, you know, all his experience as a young man uh, serving, you know, thousand and thousand miles from home, you know, for a country never been before, which was why was my country. So we had a double connection. And um, he, he went through Normandy. He actually fought in, in the eastern part of France near Metz, where he was uh, wounded in November 1944. And uh, so that's how it started, like, together, like, just going around the U.S., uh, recording my story of me recording veterans. I know it's kind of weird, but I was recording veterans and you were filming me recording the veterans and you were asking them questions about their experience and how they felt about friends. And uh, I would say that Seal and John felt pretty uh, appreciated, the fact that they were not forgotten. And uh, I mean, you see, I can be, I, I can be long, you know. And, uh, <laughs> So that was how we met and uh, question, second question. I know after what it's. Yeah, let me, let me just kind of join in with what you're saying. Flo, uh, I was told by Veterans Back to Normandy. He was volunteering with Veterans Back to Normandy. And Michelle Coupe, my co-producer, said, he's in town interviewing these veterans. You really need to meet them. And I felt like Flo was the poster boy for my point. And my point was how much French people love the veterans and want to honor and respect them. So here's a young man who had graduated from, you know, college, studied history, and he had saved up money to come to the United States in the off season. He didn't have very much money. He really didn't know where he was going to sleep or what he was going to do. And he did buy this camper. He painted, do you know a World War II veteran on his camper? And he just started driving around and he would sleep in Walmart parking lots and relied on the goodness of people and people sharing stories and making connections. And I just thought that is the quintessential example of what I met when I went in Normandy. People would spend their disposable time and their money doing whatever they could to honor the men that liberated their country. Um, and when I just first heard about Flo, that was all I was going to do was just record him doing his thing. But it became much more than that as I watched how he talked with these veterans and got them to open up. And I don't even know if I've told Flo this, but what I witnessed was Flo has studied their units in detail, in minute detail. He knows the units that landed. He knows where they went. He's been to the places. Sometimes he'd meet the veterans who've never been back after they were in this place and Flo can tell them about that place. So what happened is as Flo would talk about what he knew about where they were and what their unit did, all of a sudden I watched the veteran realize or, or feel like they were talking to another comrade in arms. 
another person that had walked in their shoes and been to their place and understood what their unit did. And so the veteran then would like a flower, as I watched, would just open up and begin to tell flow things that most people would never hear because they wouldn't know the questions to ask. Mm -hmm. And so as I watched Flo do that, not only did I see a Frenchman who was, you know, giving up and doing all these things, I saw, I saw how important it was when you genuinely cared about a person and you would dive into what was important to them, how you would treat someone with respect, how you would engage them in conversation and how you'd just be more interested than just trying to get something that you want for your purpose or make yourself feel better by saying thank you or spending two minutes. Flo's interviews would be hours. It was, they were okay to talk with me. <laughs> they were okay to talk with him, but usually they were. Yeah, no, no you're absolutely right most of the time. And uh, I know we're like going a little bit further in your, into your question, but I think if you talk with a veteran and you you have the intention of recording a story, just don't go there and hoping that it's just going to open up with you. And um, you know, there are basics books. And uh, for example, I just brought one here. Like if you made a veteran of the 29th division, you know, you can have a book like that. You know, it's the historical book of the 29th division. And inside um, you have a lot of information. You have pictures. Uh, is there a couple inaccuracy? Of course, you know, they're always like uh, nothing is perfect, especially it was made right after the war, but you have maps, you know. So if you're talking to a veteran and he's telling you like which unit he was in, sorry. Um, you can actually refresh his memory by showing him maps, you know, uh, giving him names of commanding officers, um, maybe that he remembered, stuff like that. And it's going to refresh his memory. But I've seen too many people just uh, hoping to have a, an amazing interview by just going there and ask basic questions. The veteran's going to feel it that you don't know about his unit. You don't know the place he's talking about. And you're going to slowly but surely close the interview. You're going to feel it that you're going to ask questions. His answer is going to be more and more brief. And you know that it's the end. And yeah. if, you, if you just ask question and he knows that you talk, you talk the same language. Of course, as a Vietnam veteran told me, you don't know how it smells. And it's true. I never have been in combat and I don't know the smell of the fresh blood from a, a friend that have been wounded in action uh, next to you or that have been killed. But I can, uh, I, can, I can know the place. I can know the units. I can talk a little bit about the language and maybe knowing this language, the veteran going to be able to describe about that day where he lost his friend, you know, about that day where he, he, he went through something that it's super hard to talk about because he feel that I, even if I don't know the smell, I can a little bit understand more that if I didn't do any research about his unit, for example. But yeah, um, yeah it's just one little thing. So speaking about the veterans, you know, you are answering a little bit of my question down the road, but now we've gotten into the 29th division. Um, and, you know, what I love, Flo and Jenny are tour operators. They have a company called? World War II Veterans Memories. That was the name of the project, you know, when we created it. Like, I mean, I created it a long time ago. I just created a Facebook page. I'm like, World War II Veterans Memories. And 
because people know us now through that name uh, in different projects. You know, we decided to create a company and keep, keep the name. Yeah, so my family hired Flo and Jenny when we went there, I guess, last year in 2019. And he told us some powerful stories uh, standing on Omaha Beach. And I would love, I know it's one of your favorite stories. So tell us, uh, and this story actually led you to meet Jenny. So first start with this story and tell us a little bit about uh, that. Okay. Uh, So, you know, again, long story short, um, I have a lot of different interests about different units, about different people, but... um, very close by, about 15 minutes from here, we have uh, Omaha Beach, uh, where a lot of men, you know, landing on D-Day, uh, mainly part of the 29th Infantry Division and the 1st Infantry Division. And uh, since I'm a young, you know, kid, uh, I know about the Bedford boys. And uh, um, those men were from a small town in Bedford, Virginia, and I will let Jenny talk more about it. But um, this is, you know, what actually led me to go there. So um, I don't want to say too much, but because I would like Jenny to tell, talk about it, but um, my interest was, I know about Omaha Beach. I know about the place. I've seen the bunkers. I can visualize the guns. I can see the, the you know, the beach obstacles. I can imagine the landing craft, the man, you know, uh, getting out of those landing craft and being killed on the beach. Uh, but there one place where actually 19 young men from one company got killed, you know, Bedford, Virginia. And I will, and I just wanted to go there to, to see where they grew up. A lot of people are coming to Normandy to see where the battle took place. But me, I wanted to go to Bedford, Virginia to see the place where they grew up, where they have a normal youth, you know, with their friends playing football. Uh, maybe baseball, you know, going camp, you know, camping, uh, the the Blue Ridge Mountain, you know, all those things. I wanted to see where they grew up, and uh, maybe Jenny can tell you a little bit more about the Bedford boys because she's from there. So, can you maybe tell us more about you know? He's Bedford? gonna he's gonna make me talk now. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm from Bedford, Virginia, and as Flo said, there were 19 young men from Company A that were killed on the beach, and one other from Company F. So it's 20 in total on D-Day, and it's the highest per capita loss than any other town in the United States. Um, So the town felt it, uh, I would say, dramatically. And even to this day, like you can still feel in Bedford, the just the loss, it it affected, I would say, the town itself. Um, And so there in Bedford is the National D-Day Memorial. And I was working there for over seven years. Um, Oh. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> long time uh, before Flo decided to show up one day. With my camper. <laughs> yeah, with his camper. And one of the volunteers came in, Bill came in, and he's like, you have to come out here and meet this crazy French guy. He's amazing. Mm-hmm. He's going all around the United States. You have to come see his camper. And it was just like a 10-minute, really quick meeting. But Flo was like, let's keep in touch professionally. It's like, okay. <laughs> I have already some intention. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's like, you can help me get in touch with veterans. I was like, sure, I can help. That's great. But she added me on Facebook. So for me, that was a sign. <laughs> like, yeah. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. 
Okay, so that was one year you met. You learned there was this National D-Day Memorial there. You didn't even know about that. I didn't even know about that. I went to Bedford. It was late. I remember there was a beautiful evening, probably like 7 p.m. No, maybe 6. I don't know, 6 or 7. And I, I saw yard sale, and I was like, yard sale. Yeah, oh, maybe I'm going to find something super cool. And that was just... Uh, in front of the, you know, the gas station near the highway before you cross the bridge. And there was that house. And I'd, uh, is that the yard sale? Well, uh, I was like, do you know, uh, do you have anything linked to World War II? And she was like, oh, let me think. I think I've got something because I put my shoes in a, in a box and their date. And she came back. And there was a box that was used by the medical corps, medical corps to put like, how do you call the plasma? Plasma, you know, when someone is wounded in action and is losing a lot of blood, you put plasma. And that was where he was putting his shoes, and that was 1943. And he was like, okay, how much do you want for it? And he just gave it to me because he saw my camper, the signature. So I was like, oh, cool. He was like, are you here to see the National D-Day Memorial? Like, what are you talking about? You know, the National D-Day Memorial behind you. And I just turned, and I saw the massive hill with the big monument on the top. And I was like, Wow. I had no clue about it. And the day after, so I spent the night at Walmart, very nice, very quiet and clean. <laughs> and uh, no, I spent the night at Walmart and the day after I met Jenny, by coincidence. And uh, actually, I'm going to go on. You put <laughs> me in touch with a veteran by the name of Hayden Furo. He was in the 8th Infantry Division. For those who don't know, the unit landed on July the 4th. 1944, which is kind of a symbolic day uh, in the United States, as they landed in Normandy on July the 4th, and Aiden Furrow, he gave me his contact info, and I called him, but I was like, I'm, I was supposed to leave, because on May the 8th, important thing going on in Washington, D.C., the 70th, 70th anniversary of... V.E. Day. Uh, the, yeah, V.E. Day. So that's why I had to leave, and I called Aiden, I'm coming back very soon, I will see you. Again, sometime I will come and record your story. And that's the year after. It was almost a year later. Yeah, almost a year later. I said, Ginny, you cannot believe it. I've had so many guys to record in your area. Uh, that would be nice to catch up and stuff. You know what? I had only one veteran. So I came back to Bedford, Virginia, in the middle of nowhere to meet Aiden, of course, but to see Jenny. And what happened next? It was Easter. And so my family, we decided to do something crazy and invite Flo for Easter. The deepest regret of your father. <laughs> my deepest regret of my father. And my they, they father. made him they made him sleep in the driveway in his yeah. keeper. First of all. Well, first we asked where he was staying and we all felt bad. We're like, he's staying in Walmart parking lots. He's doing something really great for our country. The least we can do is give him a shower, a hot meal. And the first night we had, he had to stay in the driveway to make sure he wouldn't take the silver. <laughs> then the next night yeah. he was allowed to stay in the house. I think we had a good feeling with your family. Yes. Um, it was like your we, father as well. I think he, he can read people very well. Yeah. He saw that it was super nice, amazing. No, I think I'm just joking. Yeah, but he, no, he, he, can, he could read that I was not like a bad guy. Yeah. You know, I'm just saying. No, because like right away it was like you were part of the family. Yeah. Although he did warn me about you like three days later to be careful yeah <laughs> he knew about it but so yeah that was 2007 16 16 16 
2016. And afterward, like, if we want, we can go with the love story because that was hard. You know, I was living in France, she was living in, 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 in the United States. And um, that was, I mean, let's be honest. Can we talk about things? I think people would like to know the true story, you know? Go ahead. Don't worry. So we started to realize that was very hard on us. You know, we were texting and stuff and we were like, you know, let's try to stop that because it, we, it won't go anywhere. We were texting every day. Yeah. Was- and she started to be like, it's too hard. And she stopped. And I was like, okay. So we stopped. I was very sad, as you can imagine. She was too, but I didn't know. And in 2017, in June, no, in May, May of 2017, I had a car accident. And you know, the, the first thing I thought about, because, you know, I was broken, you know, I, I had broken bones and stuff. I'm like, I'm going to send a picture of my car. And she likes me. She's just going to text me and say, are you okay? That's the only thing I was thinking about. My car was just crushed on the side of the road. There were fire truck. There were everybody, are you okay? Are you okay? And I was like, oh, you know, I was bleeding a little bit. I had broken bones. And they put it, me in the fire truck and I was just smiling. I'm like, I'm going to put a picture on Facebook and I'll see if she sent me a text. <laughs> and she sent me a text. <laughs> and after that, when she was like, Flo, are you okay? And I was just like pretending, you know, I won't answer. I haven't seen it. But I was like, yeah. She's texting me back. And after a while, we didn't stop talking because she thought something serious happened. So she was sad and she cried and stuff. I was worried. Yeah. <laughs> I was worried. So, yeah. So that's the love story. If you well, get a car accident, you know, if you text, <laughs> if the lady texts you, it's that she cares. It's serious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so they then did continue this long distance love story. And when I had met them, they were still texting all the time and calling all the time and, you know, Facebook, you know, video chatting all the time. Yeah. Uh, that was through 2018, 17, eight or 18. And yeah, then um, in 2019, right? Yeah. No, 2018, you no. got married. No, 2019. September 2019. Last year. In Iceland. They so got your ring, yeah. babe. Yeah, look at that. <laughs> I that don't persistence have paid off. So, so now yes. she can she can go back to the US. <laughs> well, no, I'm just kidding. I can. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, so and now they've created this tour company together. Uh, and I think it's just beautiful because um, Jenny now is, she's done all the tours at the National D-Day Monument and now she can help flow and uh, it's been pretty sweet. Um, okay, so now let's go back to uh, Flo about talking to veterans. And you told us the first suggestion that you have for us is to talk to to do our research. I think is what you would say. Uh, do yes. your research and um, know about the veteran and a little bit about his unit before you go into a conversation. Right. Of course, like you know, I would say if you have like someone like you, you know, you have of a World War II veteran in your town. Let's say his, his name is John Smith. You call John Smith and say, hey, this is Mr. Smith. Yeah. Um, I, I've seen on the newspaper that you're a World War II veteran. Is that correct? Yeah, I was in World War II. Can I ask you which unit were you in? I was in the, you know, 9th Infantry Division in World War II. So, okay, 9th Infantry doesn't ring a bell maybe for most of the people it does for some but if it doesn't ring a bell 
you can ask where 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 did you serve, which country did you serve you know in this, in this outfit and stuff and maybe with the geography you're going to be able to ask more questions i would say just ask a couple more questions and write his unit when you arrived in his unit because sometimes if your replacement you know the nine division was in you know africa was in sicily was in normandy germany all over the place so ask him if he's a replacement or if he's an original member and just that question gonna bring you different answers and you just write when he was assigned to his unit which unit approximately how long he served and blah 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 blah, blah if he was wanted if you want to talk about it and after what you do your research you just go on google and most of the time if you put like nine infantry division history you're gonna have a lot of information so you try to maybe print the paper or you maybe try to i don't know remember some some area where he fought and some names and i don't know and after what you just do your job you do your research you can print a few pictures as well because when you print pictures you know visually uh like if you want to talk about the yorkton forest uh, there were a lot of wood there were a lot of men that died because of um uh how do you call that well it's when the trees splinter oh, uh the black the tree blast yeah Burst, yeah. tree burst. Tree burst, yeah. And so if you show pictures of men, you know, in the wood, walking, and just that going to bring back memories because visually this is what you experience, you know. And if it's if he fought during the Battle of the Bourges, you show pictures of men, you know, in the snow, maybe sleeping in the snow and stuff like that. And it might open like some memories and, you know, you can try, but I just, I mean, there are a lot of different ways to do research. You can do it very professionally with morning reports, with after action report, and with all those military reports that it's hard to have access. But online, there's enough. You write 10, 15 basic questions, and you go with the flow. And you'll see if he doesn't want to talk about, uh, yeah. You'll see if he doesn't want to talk about something because he's going to, um, you're going to try to change the subject or you're going to be like next or, you know, something like that. Or, and if, you, if, if he's opening a door, if you start, for example, to talk about a soldier that you know being killed or wounded and he's giving you some details, it shows you that he's, he's, he's ready to open up about things that m most of the veterans are not very willing to talk about, you know, like... Uh, the the death brutality violence and stuff um like don't ask someone like uh did you kill any prisoner of war you know uh how who gonna ask you that uh, answer that question but maybe if he talks about prisoner being killed you can ask did did that happen in your in your unit you know it's it's not that personal and maybe after what, he's going to tell you some stories that he personally witnessed. But what I'm trying to say is that sometimes there are some doors that are opening and you can go through that door. I don't know if it's French. I mean, and you know that it's going to be able to go further. But if you ask a veteran, did you kill someone? Boom. You're building a massive wall between him and you. Yeah, so, what we say is sometimes you need to go in through the back door the back door going through the front door yeah um and that's one thing i noticed you know you were very respectful uh you never forced any questions you really were just 
it was sort of a dance that you did with them. Yeah. And one other thing I want to point out that you did that I learned as an interviewer is you would not rush in to ask this next question. No. You would wait. And oftentimes after they seemed to finish answering your question, if you didn't jump in right away with the next question, they offered more information. True. And again, you can feel that. I mean, that's something that you need. Don't be afraid of a time off. Don't be afraid that like, oh, I'm such a bad interviewer because uh, there's some silence and nobody's talking. I should ask a question. No, let it go because sometimes silence talk, you can see that in his eyes, is thinking, you know, and just that on camera is, ma- is magic when you see a veteran thinking about something. And maybe he's going to jump on something because he's thinking about it and he's going to talk about it. But as well, sometimes what I'm doing, I'm just asking, what are you thinking about? And sometimes that's the most powerful stories. He's thinking about something, but he was not really ready to talk about. And um, I remember like Frank Mully, he was with the 20th Armored Division and he actually, uh, he was in Germany in 1945 and his unit was in Dachau. They were not necessarily the first to go into the camp, but they were in the area. And uh, for like probably two minutes, he was thinking, you know, and I just asked him, what are you thinking about? And he just told me all the, the men that he saw, you know, that were skeletons with, you know, uh, blue and white stripes, pajamas. And that was what he was thinking about. But he was not really thinking to talk about it. So what I'm saying is that no rush. Just, again, go with the flow. Silence is not a bad thing. You can ask a veteran a question. And if you see that he's thinking, let him think. Maybe he's going to start to talk about what he's thinking about. And if he's not talking about it, you can ask him nicely, hey, Frank, what are you thinking about? And maybe he's going to share with you. Yeah, and I would say the takeaway for any first-time filmmakers listening to this podcast or watching this podcast, this does not just apply to veterans, in my you know, opinion. This goes for any interview mm-hmm. of anyone that you ever want to talk to. These are some things. I mean, I've watched a lot of people conduct interviews. Flo has taken this to an incredible science. And, and it's a relationship that I watched him create. And I watched, he is, in, it begins with the respect that he has for the person that he's interviewing just a humble respect. He's so grateful to be in their presence that they've Mm -hmm. given him time. And you can sense that in his gratitude and humility. And then he's done his research before he gets there. And so he's thought about what he can bring. Like he said, photos that he can show, new information that he dug up and found that he could ask questions about. So he's well-versed in, in what this man's life or woman's life is. And then he is constantly assessing as he senses what's going on inside the veteran. He's looking at his eyes and he's sensing this feeling So it's a very emotional thing that Flo is doing with them. He's creating this relationship. And what he knows, and I've watched him do this, 
he knows he's leading this person down an emotional path that could be very difficult to recall. Yeah. And so he's respectful to let him process those emotions that he's feeling. And just like he said, silence on camera is a powerful thing. Mm -hmm. And so those lessons apply no matter what interview you're doing, whether it's a veteran or someone else. But yeah, absolutely. But again, you know, talking about respect, the first thing you can do in his very basics is if you want to respect him and you want to show him that respect, just read a little bit about his story. You know, if, I mean, if he's telling you his unit three days before you have no excuse. Oh, I didn't have time. Yes. You always have time to have a beer in the pub or to do something else to go jogging, but you don't have time to read for 30 minutes online things about his unit. If you just go into the house and you know, basic stuff about his unit, it's good. I've, I've, I'm, I'm watching a lot of videos online, you know, uh, Library of Congress and on YouTube. And some of the interview are fantastic because you can see that the guys did the research. And uh, some veterans like C.O. Boer, you don't need to do research because they are open to talk about it. But some veterans, I remember we've met, a, you know, a veteran uh, in Wisconsin, um, Michigan. He was on Okinawa. And he recently opened up. His his answer were very brief, but I knew about the first Marine Division where, where they went, you know. And so I asked him some specific question, and he was able to open up a little bit. But if I was just asking him, okay, so where did you go on Okinawa? I mean, we would have nothing. You remember? But the thing that uh, the thing that I think is you know really important, even with CO Bauer, CO Bauer is in our film. He's one of the veterans that he has a powerful story in there, and he is willing to talk. But the difference with you, Flo, is because you have extra information and you have done your research. We got into a deeper place with CO than most people who would just ask him the facts. You can Google C.O. Bauer or, or the Iron Men of Mets, and you can get the general facts. And if you just come with those general facts, yes, he's going to tell you those general facts, but you get beyond that. And I think, I think that's what I've seen in the interviews that you do. Any film, um, you know, the power is in the people opening up and sharing stuff they don't normally share. It's not just, yeah. you know, it's not just yeah. informational. And so you make connection. I'm just going to say one thing today because I had a very moving day for me, for myself. I was touring with, uh, with seven kids and they're all from Africa. They're migrants. Okay. And, um, there were with two adults that were showing them Normandy and they hired me to, to tell them stories. And, you know, that was very moving because I was, I knew where they were coming from, somewhere from Tunisia, uh, Mali, Guinea, uh, one was from India, and they all had like some very difficult, 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 difficult stories to tell. And I knew about it. So that's why we were talking about a lot of those guys crossed the Mediterranean Sea on boats, small boats, you know, for days and days and days. And I knew about it. So that's why I, I made that connection to talk about D-Day and the crossing of the channel about some young man who never been in France, he couldn't speak the language, you know, blah, 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 blah. And after what, 
we were at Ponyok. I talked about the Rangers, their difficult experience, and I just talked about the fact that the men were in the landing craft for a few hours before they, you know, get out of the landing craft to climb the cliff. And when we were done with that, his name is Hamed, and he came to me and he said, you know, Flo, I spent 13 days on a small boat. And I was like, you know, he just came to me and he wanted to talk about it. I'm like, wow, 13 days? And I'm like, did you, were you by yourself? And well, like, yeah, no family. I was 14 and he flew, he was living, he was trying to escape from Egypt, you know, Egypt. And he left from Egypt, went on a small boat and 13 days. And I'm like, did you have food? Like I was eating once per day, you know, just a little bit of rice and stuff like that. And he was just telling me that story. And I felt, wow, it's like I'm talking with a, a veteran, but of a, different type of war, different context, different country. But um, I don't know why I'm saying that, but it's just by creating that connection with the crossing of the channel and uh, the fact that the men spent a few hours on the boat after, you know, on the landing craft, you know, going to the beach, he was able to open up about it. And I was super moved. I felt this kid is 17 today and he went through much more than any people I know here in France. And, that was just a moving, moving story. And we started to talk a little bit with Hamed. I was asking him some question. And it's like I was interviewing him on different level, but I didn't try to say, hey, did you see anyone drawing? Did you like, what? Drowning or stuff like that. I didn't ask those stupid questions because he would like, afterward, he would like just, I would say, close. Yeah. Just asking questions about the food, about the sleep. He didn't, like for 13 days, he was on the small boat. No no bed, no nothing. They were just packed like that for 13 days. Almost run like a few times because the boat, you know, the waves and just crazy. But anyway, I'm out of the subject, but I'm just saying that other people are suffering, you know, are struggling today. Well, and what you're talking about is the compassion and the connectivity and really trying to make a relationship when you're talking with someone. And yeah, definitely key, key takeaway and in interviewing for filmmakers. Um, real quick, we do need to wrap up, but I think you've got some exciting film projects of your own. You're working over there right now. Tell us quickly a little bit about you don't talk that. about it. No, I'm no just talk about it. Okay. Okay. She's shy. <laughs> I'm afraid to say anything wrong. I will correct you. No, I'm just kidding. So, um, so you, you heard about a company of the 116. I told you about the Bedford boys, uh, but it's about, you know, it's less than, I would say it's about 15% of the company, a company of the 116. And that company lost, you know, more than 90% of their men on D-Day. And maybe you're going to agree with me, Christian, but have you, have you ever heard about anyone else in a company except no, the Bedford, Bedford boys? We're kind of f- forgetting the other ones. And um, so with my friend, Joey Van Messen, um, Snafu podcast, uh, and uh, Orion Ziad from the Pound Show, it's French name, Pound Show. It's a, it's a play on word, but anyway, um, we the three of us are producing uh, with Jenny. She's really helping me. So that's why I'm going to say the four of us are producing a documentary about the men from a company of the 116 that landed on dark green sector on Omaha beach. And it's, we're talking about the action, what they did and uh, the context of the landing and what they went through, but we're really doing make, I mean, zooming on the individuals 
and we are as well like uh, zooming on who are the men from C Company of the Second Ranger Battalion who landed on their right on the day and helped to capture Double and Seventy Three and helped to open the D One exit, which was like one of the objectives, you know, of the One Sixteen is to, to take D One exit. But anyway, um, it it's been very moving because we did a lot of research about all those individuals that died on D-Day and some of them are going to die later on during the Battle of Normandy or, you, you know, somewhere else in Europe. And we're producing a short documentary to pay respect to those guys. So it's going to be more about the individuals, who they were, where they were coming from and what happened to them on Omaha beach. If they survive or not. And, um, it's a big, big zoom, you know, we always talk about Omaha Beach, the number of casualties. It's the big picture. But we're really zooming on A Company of the 116, C Company of the 2nd Ranger Battalion, and I'm talking a lot, I know. And we're re really trying to make something new because a lot of people say, oh, another documentary about Omaha Beach. Yeah, but it's going to be something absolutely new. Well, it's going to I'm, be just great. Yeah, because I'm sure with you, you know, your thought behind it, it will be. Uh, Flo is famous for saying, I care about the story behind and yeah. hacking more than just what you see on the surface. Just quick question, guys, just for you. Saving Private Ryan is based on it, okay? Okay, it's, you know, C Company of the Second Ranger, you know, the men are Tom Hanks and blah, blah, blah. They're like C Company Second Ranger, all the men that you see dying are part of the 116. Do you know the real name that Tom Hanks is portraying in the movie that we all know? Nope. No idea. Who was the real man that was the captain of that specific company? One of the most famous movie, one of the most famous actor is playing someone, but... We don't know who he is. And I'm going to be very honest with you guys. I didn't know that his name either like a year ago. And his name is Captain Gorson. And he was like just like 24, 25 years old. And he was leading a company of ranchers on D-Day. Saving Private Ryan, Tom Hanks, kind of represent that man. He's portraying that guy like new. And we have his picture. We know what he did. We have some reports. It's just going to be amazing to... Brought to the light, do you say that? Bring to light. Bring to light those individuals that did some crazy stuff that we don't know about. But anyway. Thank you. Okay, so real quick, uh, tell us where people can find what you are doing on social media. Where can they engage with you, Flo? Okay, so there are different things I'm going to show you so you have a visual. But we're very active on Instagram. Uh, it's www.veteransmemories.com. I don't know if you can see it. I guess you can you? Yes, www.veteransmemories uh, is your Instagram. That's the Instagram and the Facebook. And you're going you're gonna to be jealous. Um, I'm just kidding. We put a picture and we have like over 20,000 likes just on one picture. But anyway, I know. just. I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's the Facebook page. Yes, World War II Veterans Memories. That's Flo's Facebook page. And he's always putting up very interesting content. Uh, people, he's thought very much about what people want to hear, what is interesting for them. So uh, following uh, him on Instagram and Facebook is what And we do. have the website. We have the website. If you want to come and uh, yep. 
and, and book a tour with us. And so you can hear me all day long talking and talking and talking. <laughs> yes, World War II Veterans Memories.org. And I will tell you, Flo is by far the best tour guide I have ever hired anywhere. Um, and I've sent friends to him and they have been incredibly pleased. So if you're listening to this, you want to go to Normandy, Flo and Jenny are people. Um, and, and, and Flo, you need a t-shirt that says, go with the flow. Go with the flow. That's true. And, my and then Jenny, is, Jenny needs a t-shirt that says, I went with the flow. <laughs> That is absolutely true. Hey, Josh and uh, Jason, do you have any quick questions or thoughts? I have a ton. I, I think we need to have a part two. I, I agree with you. We need to have a part two. Jason? No, I, I think a part two is a good idea. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we'll we're going to talk more. On. That's great. We'll have you back on. Maybe our listeners can send us some questions for you. That would be pretty cool. Um, but anyway, idea. thank you so much for being here with us. It's great to see you guys, and uh, we'll talk to you real soon. Thank you for the hey. opportunity, and it was nice to see all Jason, Josh, Christian. Yeah, it's so always nice to see you, Josh. I was just going to say thank you, Flo and Jenny, and uh, you know, as always, in the wrap up, thank you to our listeners for listening to Documentary First, where we believe everyone has a story to tell, and you can be the one to tell it. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to Documentary First. We really appreciate your partnership with us. We can't do any of this without you. So thank you so much for listening, for donating, and for following along on our journey. If you are able to make a donation this week, we would really appreciate it. We are supported by donors who give us $100 or less, so anything helps. Also, if you're able to share the news about the girl who wore freedom with your friends and family, please do that on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or email. And sign up for our newsletter at thegirlwhowarefreedom.com. Please go to thegirlwhowarefreedom.com slash donate to make a donation today.